This is May 13th, 2020, and uh, it occurred to me that um, we're just a little more than two weeks from Memorial Day weekend, uh, when we usually have, and we always have, the Buddha's birthday, but not this year. Uh, we took it off the calendar. It's uh, It was an easy decision. Uh, n- not so easy. <coughs> Uh, are a lot of other decisions that had to be made, especially in uh, rural areas. Uh, I just would like to uh, acknowledge that it must be very difficult for people in rural areas uh, to continue to see themselves unemployed, struggling with bills and everything, when there are few uh, cases coronavirus cases in their in their town or even state um, it's this this agonizing really it's not too strong a word this agonizing uh, decision uh, where you have to balance all the data the medical data from the epidemiologists uh, dr fauci and others uh, which uh, would cause us if alone those things alone would cause us to stay buttoned up through the summer balance that with the very real uh, severe losses and uh, economic losses to so many people i would not want to be the governor of a state that has been just grazed by all this or a county that's just been lightly touched by all this I would not want to be put in that position to have to make that decision about when to reopen and how, when and how, how gradually. I heard a a good uh, metaphor the other day uh, that rather than thinking of it as flipping on a light switch, uh, thinking of it as turning up a rheostat, dialing up uh, the business involvements, it's, of course, the only way to really do this. I ran across an article uh, from the New York Times called How Pandemics End. And uh, it's by a Gina Colada, not to be confused with a Pina Colada. And she is uh, she writes about science and medicine. She's twice been a Pulitzer Prize finalist and is the author of six books. Uh, This is a a really good overview of uh, (coughs) pandemics in the past and um, the dynamics of balancing these different considerations. I'm just going to read little parts of it. Uh, This is from, uh, I don't know, two days ago, May 11th. She writes, "How? when will the COVID pandemic end, and how? According to historians, pandemics typically have two types of endings. The medical, which occurs when the incidence and death rates plummet, and the social, when the epidemic of fear about the disease wanes. And then she quotes a historian of medicine at Johns Hopkins, when people ask, when will this end? They are asking about the social ending, said Dr. Jeremy Green. 
In other words, an end can occur not because a disease has been vanquished, but because people grow tired of panic mode and learn to live with the disease. Uh, Alan Brandt, a Harvard historian, said something similar was happening now with COVID-19. He said, As we have seen the debate about opening the economy, many questions about the so-called end are determined not by medical and public health data, but by socio-political processes. And then another historian at the University of Exeter said endings are very, very messy. Looking back, we have a weak narrative. For whom does the epidemic end and who gets to say? And then our author chronicles previous epidemics, plagues and epidemics. Um, She writes, an epidemic of fear can occur even without an epidemic of illness. Um, And she reports on a a hospital in Ireland um, in 2014. Uh, This was during the Ebola uh, plague. Um, And uh, how many people... Uh, were terrified, even though it wasn't in Ireland. Uh, Or there was like one person they suspected may have it. They had some of the symptoms. It turned out he didn't. He died, but it wasn't of Ebola. And uh, she just describes how uh, disruptive it was, the the panic uh, surrounding this one patient. And the uh, Susan, Dr. Susan Murray of the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin said, if we are not prepared to fight fear and ignorance as actively and as thoughtfully as we fight any other virus, it is possible that fear can do terrible harm to vulnerable people, even in places that never see a single case of infection during an outbreak. And a fear epidemic can have far worse consequences when complicated by issues of race, privilege, and language. Well, that's another another topic. And uh, the fear itself doesn't seem to be the big issue now in the United States. It's uh, a kind of uh, a a what 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 many epidemiologists would say is a too too uh, careless, uh, too cavalier an attitude to reopening. Very quickly, she uh, mentions the previous horrific plagues in the world. Uh, the bubonic plague has struck several times in the ta- past 2,000 years, killing, killing millions of people and altering the course of history. This, this is a good point. Each epidemic amplified the fear that came with the next outbreak. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't see that so much now. She says, historians describe three great waves of plague. There was one in the 6th century, called the, no, the one in the 6th century, one in the 14th century, that widely referred to as the medieval epidemic, and a pandemic that struck in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The, uh, the, the the second one, the medieval plague, the 14th century, uh, killed half the population of China. 
and then from there it moved along trade routes to Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. In just the four years, in just four years, it killed at least a third of the European population. Talked about how horrendous this was. This is the bubonic plague. Uh, and she mentions here historians writing that in Florence, uh, some just refused to accept the threat. The way of coping, this author said, was to drink heavily, enjoy life to the full, go around singing and merrymaking, and gratify all of one's cravings when the opportunity emerged and shrugged the whole thing off as one enormous joke. Does that sound familiar to anyone these days? Well, that uh, that one died, ended, uh, but then one of the worst outbreaks began uh, in the, again, the 18th, 19th century in China, China, and spread worldwide, killing more than 12 million people in India alone. Health authorities in Bombay, now Mumbai, burned whole neighborhoods trying to rid them of the plague. Nobody knew if it made a difference, the Yale historian Frank Snowden said. <clears throat> she writes that it's not clear what made the bubonic plague die down. One hypothesis was that the bacterium evolved to be less deadly. Hmm, that would be nice if it happened these days. She mentions uh, smallpox. That was uh, that was really maybe I don't know the worst. Uh, no, probably the worst that we know of was uh, the the what is sometimes called the forgotten influenza the 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 one in 1918 mis misnamed the spanish flu because it originated in kansas uh, she says this flu is held up today as the example of the ravages of a pandemic and the value of quarantines and social distancing the flu killed 50 to 100 million people worldwide and preyed on uh, young to middle-aged adults. Uh, I may have said this already, but uh, my grandmother died of it. She's one of the last to die of it. She died in 1919. She was just 24. I never knew her, of course. Uh, it occurred to me recently that uh, if I go uh, from this pandemic, then my father will, both his mother and his son will have died of this. Hardy-har-har. She says that after sweeping through the world, that flu faded away, evolving into a variant of the more benign flu that comes around every year. She says until recently, the 1918 flu was largely forgotten. Other flu pandemics followed, but none so bad, uh, all the, still sobering. And here's one I didn't remember or know about. In the Hong Kong flu of 1968, that's when I was in college, one million people died worldwide, 
including 100,000 in the United States, mostly people older than 65. So more similar in that respect. 100,000 in the United States. Last I checked, we were about at 83,000 minimum. Fauci says it's probably higher uh, even today than 83,000. Then she wraps it up by saying, how will COVID-19 end? One possibility, historians say, is that the coronavirus pandemic could end socially before it ends medically. People may grow so tired of the restrictions that they declare the pandemic over even as the virus continues to smolder in the population and before a vaccine or effective treatment is found. Uh, And she quotes a Yale historian, Naomi Rogers. I think there is this sort of social psychological issue of exhaustion and frustration. We may be in a moment when people are just saying, that's enough. I deserve to be able to return to my regular life. As the economic catastrophe wreaked by the lockdowns grows, more and more people may be ready to say, enough. And then they quote her again, there is this sort of conflict now. Public health officials have a medical end in sight, but some members of the public see a social end. And then she asks, who gets to claim the end? If you push back against the notion of its ending, what are you pushing back against? What are you claiming when you say, no, it is not ending? The challenge, she said, is that there will be no sudden victory. Trying to define the end of the pandemic will be a long and difficult process. I have to... uh, just take 30 seconds to uh, mourn the loss of uh, Joe Metzinger, our first victim sangha in, the, in our sangha that we know of, first victim of uh, the coronavirus. Uh, Joe uh, was a member in Cleveland, belonged to that group. I used to see him uh, on those weekends when I would go there and give... Uh, what we call the weekend intensive. Uh, Joe came to his first seven-day session last year, April of 2019, and he was scheduled to come to this past March session, seven-day session that we had to cancel. Uh, it may very well be that had he come, he died on April 2nd. We just learned about this a few days ago. But had he come to that March session, which was in the second half of session, I believe, had he come to that, uh, had we had it, uh, he may very well have infected people there. Time waits for no one. Life slips quickly by. I was talking with John and Truman this morning. Uh, we uh, 
we're pretty sure we want to launch some kind of a virtual session in the during the week uh, that the June session was scheduled to be. That's the second week of June that we'll um, we'll structure something kind of a session light. Um, There'll be longer break periods than our usual session schedule at Chapin Mill. We have to give people, everyone's going to be at home, most everyone's going to be at home with their families and pets and all, but uh, we have to give more people more time uh, to manage things, meals and so forth. Uh, we're edging toward uh, announcing what the schedule will be. Uh, we're thinking about starting it at 6.15, the way our all-day sittings, same time our all-day sittings start, go from 6.15 to 9 in the evening, but again with, with larger uh, break periods for meals and other things. So stay tuned to that. Uh, just a couple other odds and ends. I want to uh, put in a plug for fasting as kind of a a great therapeutic tool. Uh, I'm on, uh, this is my seventh day of a fast. I'm taking just uh, two cups of vegetable juice a day. I've done quite a few of these, maybe a dozen of these over the years. I used to uh, do them with uh, Roshi Kaplow. He, he got me onto them. And uh, some other staff, I would do these. And they've always really agreed with me. I know there are plenty of people who just can't even fathom uh, going without food uh, for seven days or five or three. Uh, but for some of us, it's not that hard. I would, I would never do a water fast again of taking only water. I did one of those when I was in my 20s. And, uh, and then I, the next time I tried it, I was with Roshi Kaplow and Polly. In Mexico, we, we only lasted three days on just water. We were lying around like dish rags, or like that. Uh, those of you who know the Gary Larson cartoons, we were lying around like boneless chickens. Um, and we, we just started taking juices on day four, and what a surge of energy they provide. Um, it's not... It's a. It's primarily a cleansing. I, I, I try to do this most spring periods, um, but it also clears up little ailments. Little. I've had a, uh, a stubborn cough for five or six weeks, and it's all but gone now. Um, that happened a couple days ago, day five of the fast. And I've had some other symptoms, including uh, my arthritis in, in one of my knees that's um, bothered me for years. And uh, it just disappears completely. No pain. So uh, I'm a big champion of, of fast, just from many experiences with them. At the same time, I'm looking forward to eating tomorrow. Uh, one last thing about uh, our morning 
Zoom sittings, which I still think are the, the greatest thing that ever happened uh, at the Zen Center, at least <laughs> certainly since it's been closed because of the pandemic. Um, I always feel conflicted. I just wanted to throw this out. Uh, a little conflicted at uh, 8 o'clock when we, uh, after we've done the four vows and we're wrapping things up, we bow to one another. And uh, my my wish is to say hello to everyone. Everyone. It's a, a really a joy. It's not too strong a word. It's, it's a joy for me to see people in Doksan uh, during this period and also just to peer into people's living rooms and attics and basements when they're sitting in the morning um, via Zoom. Uh, but usually I have a Doksan schedule right at 8 o'clock, 8.03. Uh, and even when I don't, I don't know, I find it uh, kind of confounding to look and see these whole bunch of faces and different people saying hello, good morning, and coming from who knows where. Um, so I'm just going to uh, continue to uh, wrap, you know, cut out at uh, at eight o'clock, um, and uh, just count on people getting able to spend a little more time with people uh, during the Doksans. Well, I have some other things, but I think I'm just going to save it for next week when I will be back to eating. See you later, alligator. Thank <laughs> you.